Candace Long with Lessons in the Latter Days, offering biblical commentary to make sense of the times that we're living in. Today in Transgenderism Part 3, I introduce you to the transgender prophet that God used in a mighty way to prepare us for these end times. We're going to look at four things. Number one, who was the transgender prophet? Number two, why did God allow it to happen? Number three, what is its significance? And number four, what is God saying to us through this? First, I want to tell you a story I once heard many years ago. It relates to this episode, so bear with me. Now, I can't swear to this, but I believe this experience happened to Bishop Noel Jones, who is the senior pastor of the City of Refuge Church in Gardena, California. Now, I need to say by way of disclaimer that I am in no way endorsing Bishop Jones' theology or what he teaches, for I am simply not familiar with his ministry. However, when I heard his story, something resonated deeply with me. Apparently, this happened to Pastor Noel Jones early on in his ministry, serving the Lord but barely able to make ends meet. On this occasion, Pastor Noel was preaching in a very poor third-world country and was blown away by how the people received him with the amount of offerings that the people gave. He found himself on a train leaving that area with an envelope stuffed with cash. He was beside himself because he had never been so financially blessed in ministry, ever. As the train pulled up to the next stop, he looked out the window at all the people getting off the train, inwardly praising the Lord for this offering which was going to greatly help his ministry. Something in the crowd grabbed his attention. There was a man, if you could call him that. He was a beggar who had his hand out to passengers as they poured out of the train. Now, when the people saw him, though, they parted like the Red Sea, turning away from him in disgust. And Noel Jones could not keep his eyes off this beggar. Finding nobody to give him anything, the beggar turned around, hung his head, and slowly walked away. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Pastor Noel heard a familiar, small voice that said, Give him the money. Oh, no, Pastor Noel squirmed in his seat. Surely that cannot be you, Lord. The ministry needs this money. Now, sweat began to pour down his face and his stomach churned, just as the loudspeaker announced, All aboard, the train is about to depart. Pastor Noel was relieved, thinking to himself, this could not have been the Lord. I'll just pray for the man. The whisper returned. There is time, Noel. Give him the money. Now conviction really set in, and Pastor Noel was shaking. He searched the crowd and spotted the beggar off in the distance, almost out of sight. He stuck his head out the window and began yelling for the man to turn around. At the last possible moment, the beggar turned to see who was calling. Pastor Noah waved for him to come to the window, his pounding heart ready to explode. The beggar, even more disgusting-looking than he had imagined, walked up to the window 
and with every ounce of submission, Pastor Noel held the envelope out the window and put it in the beggar's hands and simply said, The Lord Jesus wants you to have this. The beggar looked up at the pastor with the kindest eyes he had ever seen. Taking the envelope, he said softly, Thank you, Noel. Noel Jones, as you can imagine, was speechless. How did this beggar know his name? He ultimately concluded the beggar was an angel, and God had just given him the test of a lifetime. Noel, what will you do when you hear my voice say something you don't want to hear? From that moment on, according to his testimony, Bishop Jones' ministry never lacked financially. In the last episode, I talked about John the Baptist, who had something to say to a culture that was derelict in its faith. John looked disgusting, too, coming out of the wilderness wearing camel's hair, but God had sent him with a message the people desperately needed to hear, because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and that means it was right around the corner, only days away. I bring you this episode in the same vein. I believe God is saying, what if my people learned that I have many things to say through a messenger that most would find repulsive? Would they stop to hear and discern whether or not it was my voice speaking? Or would they just turn off the radio station or hit the stop button on the podcast? Who is the transgender in the Bible? The answer? The prophet Daniel. I can imagine you're saying, wait a minute, how can you say Daniel was a transgender person? Transgenders are perverted. God wouldn't use someone like that. Not long ago, I began to study Daniel's backstory to find out who was this prophet God used so mightily and entrusted to teach us in minute detail about the very end of days. Now, other than the Bible, two of the resources that I refer to in this section are Unger's Bible Dictionary and the Antiquities of the Jews by the first-century Jewish historian Josephus. I'll share with you what I discovered and let you decide whether or not Daniel was transgender. First, here is what transgender means from an Internet search. Transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. That's it. The word, in its essence, has nothing to do with sexually perverse behavior that we instinctively ascribe to this group of people. A transgender person is not necessarily a pervert who is walking in sin. Now let's look at Daniel's backstory. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, he took back with him to Babylon some of the most notable of Jewish children around 604 B.C. Four of the children that he took were Daniel and his three friends who were all members of the royal family of King Zedekiah of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel's name to his Babylonian god, Belteshazzar. 
The other three we all know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Josephus describes how the king was taken by the remarkable beauty of these boys. In Daniel 1, we read that the boys were without blemish, handsome and skillful in all wisdom, and endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to serve in the king's palace. The king doted on them and delivered the children to tutors to instruct them in the Chaldean ways. Oh, and by the way, he made them eunuchs. What is a eunuch? The Hebrew word is saris and refers to a male who has been castrated. That means his testicles have been removed, depriving the man of power, vitality, and vigor. Though his male organ is usually left intact, castrated men experience a much diminished sex drive because their bodies have a very low level of the male hormone testosterone. This lowers the ability to be sexually aroused and can cause hot flashes, loss of body hair, and breast growth. Now, making someone a eunuch was a barbarous custom that many cultures in the East used to treat their captives, not only when the boys were young, but also after puberty. Interestingly, the custom originated with Semiramis, the legendary founder and queen of Babylon. Eunuchs are found throughout Scripture in leaders of other nations around Israel. The eunuchs were the ones trusted to guard and care for the royal women such as in harems. Now, the Torah is clearly against this practice, either on people or on animals. But the New World Encyclopedia explains that in other Eastern cultures, eunuchs often became high-ranking governmental servants since they were incapable of having children and would not be tempted to seize power and build their own dynasties. Interestingly, the role of eunuchs was well established among the Greeks and Romans and emperors such as Constantine, who was surrounded by them for bathing and haircutting and dressing. You may find it interesting that Daniel's forced transgenderation, if that is a word, fulfills one of Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 39. When the prophet Isaiah gave a stern rebuke to King Hezekiah after he foolishly showed the emissaries from Babylon everything he had in his treasuries, Isaiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who are born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah was speaking about the royal lineage of King Hezekiah being cut short as part of God's judgment against Judah for turning away from God. Daniel, the eunuch, was a fulfillment of that judgment some 70 years later. He would never be able to bear children and extend the royal line. Now, I want to pause a moment to reflect on the rise of transgenderism in our culture now. What's happening to so many of our young males and females? 
Could we also be experiencing a similar judgment on our nation, whereby many of our children will be unable to reproduce and extend our generation? Now, from Daniel's perspective, everything God made him as a man was forcibly removed by a godless culture. His spirit was trapped inside a body that was forever changed. Now, isn't this the definition of a trans person? A spirit trapped inside a body that was never meant to be his? And isn't Daniel known as the last day's prophet? I'm just planting a seed right now, suggesting to you that Daniel appears to be a tavnit, or picture, of something God is using to speak to our culture today, the last generation before the day of the Lord. Do we have ears to hear what he is saying? Daniel was undoubtedly effeminate and androgynous. His nature was gentle. He was far from a stud. But he was beloved of God and rewarded for his purity. Through no fault of his own, he was forced to live in a culture that destroyed not only his manhood, but took him away from his Jewish homeland and roots. And yet God shows us through this young man that even here, the Lord will glorify himself through us when we abstain from the lusts of the flesh and learn to rest in the place where we have been taken captive. With everything in him, Daniel stayed true to the Lord. He prayed three times a day toward Jerusalem. He submitted himself every day to be used of the Lord to serve a godless leader. And God used him greatly. Like Joseph, Daniel gained favor with his guardian. He was allowed to keep a kosher diet and abstain from idolatrous ceremonies. The Lord taught him to be gifted in interpreting dreams, and after using those dreams to help the king, Nebuchadnezzar elevated him to be ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief of governors over all the wise men of the empire. So although he lived his life in a transgendered state, Daniel was the epitome of righteousness and wisdom. And God entrusted him with visions given to him in minute detail about the final kingdoms, the future history of Israel, and redemption through Messiah. As to his legacy, the book of Daniel is one of the most important prophetic books in the Bible in that it deals with the times of the Gentiles that we are living in now. At the end of his life, we read in the book of Daniel that the Lord assured him that he would proceed calmly and peaceably to the end of his days and await the resurrection. So what is God saying to us through this? Daniel is the poster child for the culture that made him androgynous. Now we've looked at Daniel now I want us to look at the culture that entrapped him, because the two, Daniel, a young boy God called to become the great end times prophet, and the culture that transgendered him, are intertwined. Together, I believe they are a tavnit, a picture that is replicated in the last generation before the messianic kingdom. 
Now, to learn more about this gender-bending culture, which is called Hellenism, there is no other writer I know who has done more research and writing about it than my rabbi, Michael Washer. His 1,000-page book called When All the Pictures Are Restored is a masterpiece. For years now, he has taught me how to study God's Word through Tavniot, or pictures that God has scattered throughout the Scriptures as curriculum that teach us about God's kingdom. It was Daniel in chapter 2 who gave us the outline for the last kingdoms of the world leading up to the day of the Lord. They are number 1, Babylon, number 2, Medo-Persia, number 3, Greece, number 4, Rome, and the final kingdom is referred to as Rome Revised or the Kingdom of the Ten Toes that I write about a lot. I'm going to be interspersing some of my thoughts with Rabbi Washer's book and relate his insight into the early formation of the worldview known as Hellenism. It was very strong in Daniel's day, and it is strong in ours. The greatest influence of Hellenism came from Alexander the Great, the king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedon in 336 B.C., Daniel writes about him in chapter 8 and likens him to a satyr, which were the half-goat and half-human creatures that we read about in Greek legends. It is believed by many, and I believe this as well, that Alexander was a demigod, descended from the Nephilim. This tells you something about his nature. Now, when Alexander conquered the world, He made all of the provinces conform to one Greek society, based on one language and one culture. In other words, a one-world government. He arranged marriages between Greek men and Persian women to bring East and West together into Hellenism, which spread into Israel and into the whole world. Hellenism spread the practice of homosexuality. It was seen as good, since most ancient Greeks were homosexuals or bisexual. Attraction between men was considered normal. Men of culture, like Alexander, loved beauty, whether man, woman, or child. The use of young boys for pleasure gained greater acceptance with the growth of Hellenism and into the Roman Empire. In the worship of Greek gods, the sacred bond between men was part of their worship. It was seen as a benefit, both culturally and spiritually, for a man to be effeminate. The melding of the sexes seemed to be at the heart of this focus. Androgyny was seen as one of the greater goods in Greek philosophy. An integral part of Hellenism was the idolatry of the Greek gods and altars of them were found in every city of those areas under Greek control. Oratory and rhetoric were the primary goal for learning, making public speaking highly prized. Athletic games were also important to the culture. That included the Olympics and other feats of strength, which were typically conducted in the nude. The concepts of democracy and of personal freedom of civics and an understanding of politics in the society structure, were first introduced through Hellenism. 
In the arts, the pursuit of balance was the primary goal. In music, art, architecture, and poetry, the Hellenistic ideal of perfect proportions was the desired goal. Perfect in speech, perfect in appearance, perfect in behavior and family life. Now, I think you will agree how much this Hellenistic culture is alive and well in our own. Our nation's capital is filled with statues of Greek gods, and our culture thrives on personal freedom, the concept of democracy, unity and blending of races and cultures, spectator sports and contests of strength, the freedom of expression, especially sexual expression, and the disturbing growth and acceptance of pedophilia among leaders of high rank. This culture is grooming our young people to strive for androgyny, and I believe this is why God kept putting transgenderism on my radar to stop and examine. Androgyny is the current name which represents an ancient culture which will become more and more dominant the closer we get to the day of the Lord. Its aim is to populate a utopia that fulfills the lust of the flesh but does not produce children. Rabbi Washer says that the only nation-state that refused to submit to Hellenism was Judea. The Jews refused to submit to the gods of Greece and Rome, and this battle between the ways of God and the ways of the world are what led to the destruction of both temples and why the followers of Yeshua the Messiah will be persecuted as well. For the end goal of Hellenism is to deface God, to destroy the essence of who He is and what He is like. This is also the end goal of androgyny and what makes it so repulsive in God's eyes. Let me explain. From the beginning, the Lord God created a race called man, Adam in Hebrew, to produce a godly heritage known as the children of God, to be the face of God and the expression of God in the earth. There were two parts needed to express God's fullness, male and female. So to remove the complete expression of all that is male, and all that is female, would wipe God's face off the map. And that is the goal of Hellenism, and it lies at the foundation of this final kingdom. Before closing, I want to say something to the young people and their families who may be struggling to find your way within the culture of gender confusion. Consider Daniel. He, too, found himself trapped inside a strange body. And yet, even there, God used him in an incredible way to prepare us for these times. The final part to this series will be controversial, for I will reveal the startling message I believe the trans community is being used by God to say to us. How that message impacts the church and what God is calling us to do about it. As always, you'll find this episode in all of my podcasts at CandiceLong.com slash podcasts. 
My calling is to write and produce resources to help you understand these times and find your place in it. If you go to my website at CandiceLong.com and click the Resources tab in the menu bar, you'll find my books, monographs, webinars, and courses. And purchasing them helps me continue doing what I do. I want to thank you for being with me. I hope you join me again next time for Lessons in the Latter Days. God bless you.